Welcome to this week's edition of Style and Empowerment Chat with Lauren Friends. I'm your host, uh, Laura Masrick. Uh, so um, I want to start out this show uh, just on a little uh, personal note. I lost my aunt last night um, after a long battle with many illnesses. Um, so I'm, I'm a little not my not myself today. So um, I, she was a wonderful woman and she was one of my favorite aunts so uh, this morning's a little hard but uh we, we have to keep going right um so I have some exciting news uh to share uh though uh, so I was asked to compete uh, I'm an, an M and uh, 
I was asked to compete and I'm an official contestant in the Fab uh, Over 40 contest. So this is a national contest um, here in the US. I know I have to specify since I have listeners from all around the globe. Uh, so it's a contest that um, all, all kinds of amazing women are competing from all over the country and has some phenomenal prizes. Um, one of the prizes is a double spread in New Beauty magazine, as well as a prize uh, in cash for $40,000, which I could uh, certainly uh, uh, appreciate and use to grow our brand and distribution and lots of other goals that I have for the show and books I want to write and lots of different things, you know, but sometimes your dreams can only take you so far. You actually need funding and support. So that would be great. And then, you know, there's uh, also a spa day uh, that they give you, which, you know, I've been going through quite a bit this last month. So that, that would be be nice. But, you know, the most important reason of why um, I hope to win or at least, you know, be in the, the top, top five um, is it just inspire women. Um, young women, you know, all, women of all ages, to love themselves, to value themselves, and just to be in touch with their own personal power, and that you can come from any background, any path, and with loving yourself and, you know, hard work can accomplish more than sometimes you've even dreamed about. So um, I'm very excited. I'm currently ranked number seven in my group of 60 women so that's very exciting so now the great thing about this is it's free to vote so you can cast one free vote every day um, and you can vote from all around the world and not just here in the United States now if you wanted to buy votes I'm not encouraging people to spend money but the nice thing about this contest is you can Buy, I think it works out basically a dollar per vote. Like you can buy bundles, 50, 100, 250. But all the proceeds from the bot votes benefit the National Breast Cancer Foundation. So it's a great way to support uh, women, uh, support me and my dreams and mission of the show, but also to raise money for breast cancer research and treatment. Um, so if you you want to vote for me, uh, you can uh, visit the Fab Over, uh, Over 40 website. So it's votefab40.com. And then, uh, you know, it'll, you'll just have to go to the tab, which has all the contestants. Um, and then scroll through and pick the one that you want to vote for. Or also, because I have a personalized voting link that takes you right to my page, but it's really long <laughs> to say. So if you check my Instagram page at the Laura Masaryk, I have a post up there um, with the address to vote for me. Also, it's on the Style and Empowerment Chat page, so you can check that out. And I have both a picture that has the link typed, and then I also have the actual clip uh, uh, link that you can click, and it'll take you right there. So I, you know, I, uh, 
I hope everybody votes. I'm excited to be in the contest with so many amazing women. And I just appreciate everybody's love and support. And I hope that I can inspire you to go after your own dreams and goals and not let anyone talk you out of your greatness. Uh, so of course, October is breast cancer awareness month. So when we come back, um, from our, uh, sorry, everybody, like I said, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm in a sad pocket right now, so I'm doing the best I can. So bear with me. Um, so when we come back from our musical break, we're going to talk about, um, preventative measures for breast cancer, as well as uh, symptoms. So you can, you know, tell if you might have breast cancer. Of course, breast cancer is a condition that affects men and women. So we're also going to talk about the warning signs for men and awareness and empowerment over your body and your health. So keep it locked into Style and Empowerment Chat with Lauren Friends Radio, and we'll be right back after this. Girl, I think that I should let you know that before I met you, I let go.
Welcome back to Style and Empowerment Chat with Laura and Friends. Getting your day going with some good vibes and good tunes. <clears throat> so now we're going to talk about, you know, empowerment through, through health awareness um, and taking care of yourself and preventative uh, care. So as we said, that t- uh, this month is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So I wanted to spend some time and talk about what are some thing, proactive things that we can do and incorporate in our daily health practices to ward off breast cancer. So the most important thing is... Uh, cancer health screenings so regular checking your breasts for signs of abnormalities is important and of course uh, getting um, yearly breast exams and you know monitoring your breasts at least once a month is a good idea Um, and also within that knowing what's normal for your breasts how they normally feel you know um, at their contours and texture because if you don't know how they normally feel you can't pinpoint what might be an abnormality avoiding cigarettes uh, cigarette smoking has continually been been named cause of many serious illnesses including breast cancer so you know cutting out nicotine also knowing your family's history be sure to ask your loved ones and relatives if there is any history of breast cancer in the family now according to the american cancer society five to ten percent of breast cancer cases are believed to be the result of uh, gene mutations passed down from a parent to a child so make sure you when you're filling out your forms at your doctor's office that you're giving a complete medical history uh, so your doctor can tell you what kind of tests you know are uh, good for you to have Uh, also sunscreen you know, not just at the beach, but when we're walking around every day, even in the winter time, can be sunny sometimes. So it's important that we layer on sunscreen in our, you know, exposed areas of skin as we're moving around, uh, and limiting alcohol intake. So of course, most of us enjoy a glass of wine or a cocktail, myself included, but alcohol may increase your risk of breast cancer as it raises estrogen levels in the body. So it's recommended to keep your alcohol consumption to two or fewer drinks per week. Also, making sure you get your bra size checked on a regular basis so that way you're getting the right level of support. So as we go through different phases in life, as we age or have different surgeries or illnesses or different things that happen throughout life, uh, you know, our breasts change, the breast shape changes. So, you know, 70% of women wear the wrong bra size. This can lead to significant health problems, including uh, poor posture, skin irritation, and breathing difficulties, not to mention a damage to breast ligaments, causing breast pain and sagging. Now, your breasts can change frequently over your lifetime. Lots of different factors can change your breast size. So, you know, making sure that 
you're you know have the right support daily right it's not too tight not too loose you know that uh, you're getting the right support that also helps with back pain and shoulder and neck pain as well uh so incorporating folic acid so not eating enough uh, folate which is the natural occurring form of folic acid acid is linked with the ability to repair dna so folate is found in foods such as spinach black-eyed peas as well as folic fortified cereals and grains so it's important to incorporate folic acid in our diets because it helps our cells repair themselves improving your posture not only a that help with back neck and shoulder pain but if you want to give yourself an instant breast lift the best thing you can do is improve your posture so the chest muscles can lose flexibility when your shoulders are hunched causing sagging over time so pay attention to how you stand and sit throughout your day um and you know try to fit in some stretches uh throughout the day you know to help with flexibility you know but your posture is going to help the strength of your chest and also your breasts and everything staying in alignment uh so of course getting your yearly mammograms uh is important as well as rest and you know controlling your stress those are all uh so you know things that you can do that can ward off against breast cancer and other health problems now what are the symptoms of breast cancer uh now they're different for both men and women so uh we're going to talk about both so according to the center for disease control um you know warning signs of breast cancer for women include a new lump in the breast or underarm armpit you know you say tomato i said tomato uh (laughs) thickening or swelling of pain of the breast irritation or dimpling of the breast skin redness or flaky skin in the nipple area or breast now of course it's winter time and whatnot sometimes you know if you have some flaky skin on on your nipple that in itself you know that isn't cause for panic because it's winter time if you're not moisturizing sometimes you can get that but you know it's if it's accompanied by other serious symptoms right so um pulling in the nipple or pain in the nipple area a nipple discharge other than breast milk like if if you're not pregnant you shouldn't be having any discharge coming from your breasts right so that in itself is a big red flag you know you haven't been working out or you know having romance time or doing anything to strain yourself if you're just walking around and all, all of a sudden you know you're it's not your ovulating time because of course when we run our cycle our breasts you know will be more tender but if it's just you're in between ovulating 
you know, you haven't been doing anything out of the ordinary, you know, and all of a sudden your breasts are really sore and tender, you know, that's something to be concerned about. So that gets back to what we were saying about, you know, Bring yourself self-exams at least once a week and a professional exam from your doctor, you know, once a month and, you know, mammograms once a year. When you know what's normal for you, then it's easier to pinpoint when something is not usual. Uh, so, of course, any change in size or the shape of the breast. Now, of course, you know, our weight goes up and down and, you know, lots of times, uh, you know, we go up a size, down a size, you know, whatnot. That's not what we're talking about. Like, we're saying your weight's been pretty much, you know, the same. And then all of a sudden you're getting dressed and you look at yourself one morning and you notice, wow, this one area, like I'm kind of bulging here where I didn't before. I look swollen here where I didn't before. Again, it gets back to what's so important is looking at yourself on a regular basis, uh, you know, examining yourself on a regular basis so you know what's normal for you. Because it doesn't matter what's normal for everybody else. What matters is what's normal for you. You know, if you're regularly a little, most of us are asymmetrical, which means one breast is a little bigger than the other, or you want them to a little higher, you know, than the other. Um, you know, part of self-care and empowerment and loving yourself is really looking at yourself and saying, besides saying, hey, I'm, I'm beautiful and I'm a bad mamma jamma, is that uh, looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, okay, this is my normal shape and contour for this breast. Is this normal? So you can, again, pinpoint, oh my God, I'm swollen here. That's not normal, right? Or it's it's um, moving more this way or that way. That's not how I normally look. Let me get to a doctor. So that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about um, when you menstruate, you might swell some or, or, you know, you'll be tender in certain areas. We're saying non-menstrual time, you know, uh, your every day and you're noticing, you know, you're red, you're tender, your breast shape has changed. Um, uh, you know, these are things uh, to, to look for pain in any area of the breast. That's, uh, especially again, if you haven't had exercise or, you know, certain types of foreplay activities that might, you know, do that. It's just a regular day. You're just getting up, you're moving around and you're in pain. That, that, that's not normal. So, you know, if you feel lumps in your breasts, of course, that's, that's something that you want to act on right away and see your doctor. Now, there's a good chance that most likely it's a cyst or a benign tumor, but we don't know that, right? So you want to get to your doctor. And with breast cancer, <clears throat> early detection is key. All right, so that is one condition where early detection is key. So the second that you see something that's out of whack, you don't feel right, you're right, you want to get to your doctor. So uh, it's not something to mess around with. And, you know, it might might be a cyst, it might not, but you want to have the peace of mind and, and act on, uh, on it right away. Now, as we said, breast cancer is commonly also 
Um, this is something men go through. We don't talk about it as much, but it's just as important for our male listeners to have knowledge and be empowered over their bodies and health and be on top of things. So um, there's a reason for the lower occurrence in males is that their breast tissue doesn't undergo the same complex developmental stages as women. Now, men do have some milk ducts. They are not as fully developed as those found in women. But with any health issue, prevention uh, is crucial. An early diagnosis can lead to more favorable prognosis. So, you know, the earlier you find out, uh, the less um, advanced a, a situation is, the more that it can be cured. Uh, so some uh, symptoms that men should look out for is persistent fatigue. Now that in its own, because lots of conditions have fatigue and, you know, we're out here working hard and juggling many hats, but these are things to pay attention. Again, it gets back to what feels normal. What's your normal tired versus this tired you can't just can't get out around from, right? Persistent fatigue is one of the initial symptoms you may observe if you're developing male breast cancer. The fatigue, which can be a common indicator, like I said, of many chronic illnesses, um, it can be alleviated with some rest. However, for cancer patients, it's different. Even it's, it's like the kind of fatigue that no matter how much you rest, you just feel tired all the time and you just uh, can't, you know, feel rested. So then the other symptom is unexplained weight loss. So of course, losing weight um, can be beneficial. But if you experience unexplained weight loss, it could be an indication of male breast cancer. This is because the body requires a significant amount of energy to combat diseases. Uh, additionally, cancer may cause a decrease in appetite in men, leading to, right, leading to reduced food intake and further weight loss over time. So, men, it's essential to monitor your weight and ensure it remains in a healthy range and that it's consistent. So, what you're looking for is out of nowhere, you're feeling this way and you're losing weight, you know, and you just don't feel yourself. Now, also, um, the presence of a breast lump is a huge indicator. So, it's one of the most noticeable signs of male breast cancer. Uh, the development of a lump in the chest or surrounding areas. Now, though breast cancer predominantly affects women, it is very crucial for men to remember that they can also be diagnosed with this type of cancer. So it's also important for men to stay vigilant uh, and examine their chest and uh, look for any um, lumps or changes in contouring or texture and so to conduct a self-examination, you're going to gently palpate the breast tissues, feeling for any abnormal bumps or lumps. And if you detect anything suspicious, don't hesitate to contact your doctor right away. 
So this is something you don't want to mess around with. So now some additional symptoms to watch for in addition to, you know, fatigue and weight loss um, uh, are uh, trouble sleeping, you know, not only the fatigue, but uh, trouble sleeping. Men can also experience the unexplained bleeding from the nipple which uh, may also be associated by discharge. So, like I said, it's crucial to stay vigilant for any suspicious changes in your body, such as swelling in the chest or surrounded areas. Uh, so, um, that's also something for men to look at, you know, uh, unexplained swelling in parts of their chest. So, it's so uh, important. Another thing, lumps located beneath the nipple. Occasionally, a lump might form beneath the nipple, which is a significant sign of male breast cancer. Tumors can be benign, meaning uh, benign means that it doesn't um, have cancer. However, the tumors can still spread if they're not diagnosed. Um, and they can also, you can have malignant tumors, which means cancerous, mixed in with benign. So, you know, if you have a lump, it's just so important just to get it out right away. And tumors, cancerous tumors tend to progress quickly. So it's crucial to tune in with your body and communicate with your doctor and make sure you're self-examining your torso every few weeks, amen, uh, to stay in optimal health. And it's nothing to be embarrassed about. And it's part of self-love and empowerment, you know, to take care of your body to monitor what's going on with your body and to take charge of your health and your well-being. Uh, so uh, that being said, I hope everybody, and you can also Google online. There's lots of great material out there of how to do self-exams and raise your arms and and all that good stuff so you know let's let's uh be on top of these things and keep ourselves uh in good health uh so we're gonna take another musical break and when we come back we have a fantastic guest so i'm uh, so excited we'll be welcoming nancy cates an independent filmmaker and uh, we will be discussing the life of civil rights leader and activist Bayard Rustin, who was one of the the planners of the March on Washington, uh, which is credited as helping to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Selma Voting Rights Movement. Uh, so we just passed the 40th anniversary of this, uh, the March on Washington. So Nancy Cates has a phenomenal independent film, Brother Outsider, The Life of 
uh, Bayard Rustin, uh, and she's going to be talking all about it uh, and uh, the life of Bayard and his impact on history. Uh, so uh, stay tuned, and we'll be right back after this musical break, diving all into uh, civil rights leaders and many uh, things that we're still dealing with today. So keep it locked in the style and empowerment chat with Laura and friends, and we'll be right back after this. <laughs> I was waiting for so long For a miracle to come Everyone told me to be strong Through the darkness and good times I knew I'd make it through And the world thought I had it all But I was waiting for you
This week's guest, an amazing filmmaker, activist, writer, just all around amazing human being, a film director, Nancy Cates. Thank you so much. That was too much. I can go now, right? <laughs> well, 
Of course, we have a, you know a lot going on in the world right now. Uh, lots of things we are still fighting um, <clears throat> for justice and equality and um, humane treatment. Uh, so uh, today's uh, topic is I feel very on point. So uh, Nancy is the director and producer of an amazing independent film called Brother Outsider, The Life of Bayard Rustin, who is a very pivotal and important civil rights leader who we're going to dive all right into. So, Nancy, can you first just kind of tell us how you got into a direct uh, film producing and what uh, drew you to this topic? Well, my whole life story. I don't think we have enough time. Well, I know, right? <laughs> when well, I, was I was three, I was in the sandbox. <laughs> well, it, I was, I, I'll be a little bit still, but it's a story. Daniel Ellsberg, I live in Berkeley, California, where Daniel Ellsberg was, you know, a local hero of the left. Um, he was the man who published the Pentagon Papers. So I came from this, you know, kind of intellectually oriented Jewish family in Boston, and I went away to camp in 1971, and the Pentagon Papers story about what had happened. And I came home, and my brother, who was two years older than me, was like, Do you know what was going on? I was like, no. So I asked, after that, I my father, who was actually in the newspaper business, send me the newspaper at camp, which the counselors thought was hilarious. <laughs> got interested in facts and news and all this stuff at a young age. And I did tell, I got to meet Mr. Ellsberg because my office made me tell about him. It's a great film. It's called The Most Dangerous Man in America, Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers. And I was sharing an office with, you know, the person who was directing this movie. So I said, Mr. Ellsberg, my entire career, it's all your fault. And he just laughed and gave me a hug. So anyway, that started early. <laughs> um, I was I worked in journalism, and then I got interested in film, and I went to Stanford's documentary program. And um, I happened to read a review in New York Times, a book called, uh, I think it was called, I've seen by Rustin, or not the Bayard Rustin Troubles, I've seen by Jervis Anderson, who was here at the New Yorker. I read this review and I thought, wow, look what this guy did. Like, he was really devoted to being an activist. He was alive for 75 years. And he, he spent his life trying to make change and trying to make the world better. And I just thought the rest of us are just schlubs by comparison. Right. And, you know, and when you, and then, like, if you're a filmmaker and you kind of encounter something like this, I'm like, oh, someone should make a film about him. You don't mean you should make a film. It's just, it always turns out that the someone, you know, that someone should make a film about this person. It's always you. So mm-hmm. It's never anyone else. So that's how it started. And I got to work with a bunch of people who had worked on the B series. Um, um, it was made by Blackside, Boston, um, about the civil rights movement. So there were a lot of Blackside alums who were involved in our project. Um, you know, I, they had worked on Eyes on the Prize. So anyway, that, I don't know if that's a, too long an answer to your No, question. it's not. Not at all. Well, let's take a moment um, for our listeners who uh, might not know who Bayard Rustin is, might not uh, be familiar with the March on Washington, because nowadays in schools they're barely teaching these things, um, and now they won't even teach the critical race theory and that racism and homophobia and hate crimes exist. Uh, So I feel it, it puts more importance uh, of 
journalists speaking up and talking about our history. So I'm just going to give um, a quick a synopsis of who Bayard Rustin is. So he was a very important and pivotal social um, movement uh, activist for civil rights, nonviolence, and also for equity. Uh, he helped plan the uh, March on Washington, and which uh, is credited with helping uh, to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which of course is the EOE laws, um, and the Selma Voting Rights Movement, which was, uh, was uh, pushing to give blacks and women the right to vote. Of course, women, uh, uh, white women, only got the right to vote in the 50s, and it wasn't until uh, the late 60s that um, all people were allowed to vote. And so this vote was, uh, this uh, march was so important. A Bayard, a Bayard, a Bayard, a <laughs> Rustin, um, also was part of uh, organizing the Freedom Riders movement. <clears throat> if you're not familiar with what that is, that was uh, groups of young, brave college students who were traveling all across. <clears throat> of the South and Jim Crow South to help advocate and help uh, get um, voter uh, people of color registered to vote and also manning the polls to make sure they could safely uh, go in and out of the voting sites. Uh, and many of the freedom riders uh, were lynched and, and victims of violence as they were trying to help fight for the rights of others. Um, now, um, Nancy, do you want to take a minute to educate our listeners in depth about the March on Washington, uh, which Bayard helped uh, to organize? I just want to clarify one thing, which is that it's, it's true that the march um, helped fraud um, the passage of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, which is later. Um, one of the reasons that the march happened was that African Americans, even though they were legally allowed to vote um, on fed through federal laws, they were barred from voting through sorts of poll taxes and exactly laws in the South. So it wasn't, you know. And to clarify, on paper they were allowed to vote, but um, uh, many states, specifically in the South, were doing different tactics to keep them from voting or registering. Exactly, um, and um, so and I've forgotten what you. Oh, so the march on Washington. So, so to give you a little more background, um, it worked very closely with another activist named A. Philip Randolph, who had organized the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which is very important for the American Union of people who were working on the train system, which. Now, nowadays, people don't think about trains, but at the time, it was a very important way for people to get people and goods to around the country. And, you know, he got putters better wages, and, you know, he was a very pivotal person in the, in the unions and the, you know, the labor movement. So in the 1940s, Randolph and Rustin had decided to make a march because the munitions industry during World War II was completely segregated, and um, both saw opportunity to work in factories making guns and munitions as an important step for African Americans. They threatened to have a march on Washington in the 40s, and the Roosevelt administration was so freaked out, the idea of having thousands and thousands of African Americans marching in the streets in the 40s, that he segregated the munitions industry. Um, the same thing happened again after the war, where, where the United States military was still segregated, and mm -hmm. Randolph again put a lot of pressure. 
pressure on the government to segregate the U.S. military, and uh, it wasn't perfect, but that happened in 1948. So rather than part of the tradition, they didn't have those tensions in the 40s, but as somebody, uh, Rochelle Horowitz, says in our film that Rutten was going to keep on trying until they had a march. He had this idea, this history, and there, there are other, I won't go into too much detail, but there are other instances where people came to Washington and rights where they just had no other way to do it if you don't have full voting rights, you can't vote someone in who will change laws. You have to do it by marching. Right. Ruston understood this, and he was very inspired by Gandhi and assault marches in India, which, you know, helped change, you know, end the British rule in India. He had this vision. Um, he only had eight weeks to this because um, they were trying to, I think it had to be done before the end of the term or something, and they decided to do it on the anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. It was held on August 28th, 1963. And he was just a genius organizer. He had, you know, he figured out how to get porta potties there because they were worried about that issue. Trained hundreds of um, African American city police officers who had you know, this organization. He trained them. He said, "You cannot bring your guns with you. You want to help us? Please." So, and so he trained them in nonviolent tactics. He studied nonviolence since he was a young man, and had even gone to India. Um, he was trying to study with Gandhi, but between when he did on his trip and when he got there, Gandhi had unfortunately been assassinated. He was a, a deep student of nonviolence and wanted to bring that to the civil rights movement and was very involved in the peace movement as well. Now, of course, the uh, March on Washington had over 250,000 people in attendance, and it's considered one of the largest rallies for human rights in U.S. history. And well, it, was the, it was the largest at that time. Right. Protests yep. many times at that time. Yep. Since then there have been larger ones. But, like the uh, mil- sorry. No, it's okay. Yeah. yeah, but it is considered one of, not the, yeah. but one of. And at that time, it was the largest. So, you know, there wouldn't be the Million Man March and um, the uh, global Women's Day marches that are, uh, you know, have started the last couple of years if it wasn't for the March on Washington. Really, it was a blueprint for many. Well, uh, as a- as a queer person, sorry to interrupt That's you, okay. as a queer person, there have been a number of LGBT marches on Washington, which are also mm-hmm. in the spirit and the tradition of Boston. And, and I felt like I forgot to mention in discussing him that he was a gay man. I mean, he was openly gay in the worlds that he worked in, maybe not in the way that we would think of today because it just wasn't as safe. Mm-hmm. Openly gay. It was often used against him by his political enemies. No, it's okay. And that's important because I did want to talk about that as well. So, you know, at at that time, it was not, you know, culturally acceptable to be open with your, you know, sexual preferences. Um, And he he did take, as you said, he took heat for that and kind of didn't as openly talk about that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's important to note, it's very important, because uh, he was fighting for all forms of civil rights. Um, and, you know, this is at a time where you could be arrested for, you know, practicing how you love. Um, so he was really putting himself on the line for the betterment of all people uh, and is, is, was just such a brave person. Um, and of course, now the March on Washington was where Reverend Martin Luther King famously uh, gave his I Had a Dream speech. 
Now, another uh, component of, of the March on Washington was at the time, uh, the, uh, there was a lot of celebrity presence at that march. And Harry Belafonte, who we just lost this past year, who was not only you know groundbreaking singer and actor, he was a groundbreaking activist, really was one of the first to really mobilize Hollywood um, and, and the entertainment industry in using their platforms to take a stand. Uh, so some of the celebrities that were at the march include uh, Rita Moreno, Marlon Brando, uh, who also was an advocate for the rights of indigenous people, Judy Garland, uh, Jackie Robinson, Sammy Davis Jr. So, you know, often sometimes I get frustrated when I hear people say, oh, well, if you're entertainers or if you're uh, athletes or whatever, I don't want to hear your political views and you should just be quiet. But, you know, uh, public figures are often uh, the people who, where the government leaves off, they'll mobilize people uh, with their influence to make a change. So, uh, Nancy, can you kind of weigh in on that? Well, the other person I, I just was, I can't help but add to your list is the actor, the late actor Ossie Davis. Yes, and Ruby D. Um, you know, he, yeah, they were there together. Um, Davis introduced Rustin when he was actually speaking at the March on Washington. It's sort of an interesting thing about, I'm not really answering your question, but it's That's okay. Like, all, all we remember about the march is Dr. King's amazing speech, and it is amazing, and it's one of the great pieces of oratory in the history of America. You know, there wouldn't have been a platform for him to do that without Rustin getting those 250,000 people there on buses and right. you know, getting people raising money so that the buses could be hired, et cetera, et cetera, and training the police officers and da 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 and, you know, there was a whole day of speakers. I mean, there's this funny moment in our film where Joan Baez and, and Bob Dylan, who performed, are walking past Rustin, and he could not give a, about them. <laughs> trying to be polite here for the radio. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, he's, he's just not trying to make sure that everything, you know, everything properly. And, like, they were pretty young, but they were already really famous. And so, you know, he certainly understood the power of celebrity, and I think mm -hmm. he good relationships with, you know, famous people, you know, black and white, who were working for social change and civil rights. Um, but, you know, the person that he was the most enamored of, I think, just being looked at the footage so many times, is Mahalia Jackson. Mm. And while she was singing, he's actually mouthing the words, you know. I mean, it's just this kind of beautiful thing. Like, he must have been completely exhausted by the time this thing started, and then it went on all day, you know. And it was a hot day in August in Washington. Mm. Um, you know, he just looks like he's just enraptured while she's singing. Um, <clears throat> and Josephine, well, I, I, Josephine Baker also uh, spoke at the march as well, no, no, or she, sang. There were, there were no women who were allowed to speak at the march, which was actually, you know, angered a lot of people. Mm. Um, and, you know, there were some women who didn't want to participate because, and I have to say, as a feminist, it was one of those, you know, when you're making a biography, you... Um, so you you want to not be upset with um, what you, you say. Know, you see, there like I I would love to have been able to ask Rustin like why wouldn't you let women speak? Um, you know, and having yeah. people sing is just not the same as as having them you know great. Yes. Um, and so he also there was this whole thing about John Lewis and how, when he was going to speak and how because he was a very young man but he was the head of SNCC at the time the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was when we were talking about those freedom riders earlier a lot of them were members of SNCC they were college students and young people who were you know, emboldened partly by the leadership of people like Rustin and King to go to the South and register people to vote 
Um, um, yeah, so it, it was it was a little disheartening to me that maybe Mr. Russin wasn't quite as much of a feminist as he was you know, an advocate for other kinds of human rights and civil rights. Um, I think I'm getting off the subject. Uh, but, you know, then, then we also, too, and I, I agree with you and have experienced that in different ways myself. Um, but, you know, you also have to think of the, the time and the day. You know, this is the 60s. We were, you know, at the height of sexism in our country and you know you we're not there now well yeah i mean i know i know right i i know i feel like we've gone backwards to you know before biden i feel like we went backwards about 40 years um no i i i i feel you sister i'm right there <laughs> But, you know, um, it, it was before women, uh, you know, were allowed to work. I mean, you know, and it was frowned upon. And basically, you're supposed to be a good little woman and, and have dinner ready and all that stuff. And, you know, we were really in, in the height of all of that. So I, I think sometimes, you know, like I used to get into these conversations about my dad, bless his soul. Um, we'd watch different movies. And when you're a kid, you're like, oh, yeah. Da, da, da. Then when you watch it later, wait, Gigi was really sexist. Wait, Hello, Dolly was really sexist. Wait a minute. My Fair Lady was really sexist. And, you know, and I get all mad. And, and when you look back and rewatch some of these same things as an adult versus a kid, when you're like, oh, the pretty costumes and the music and this and that. And then when you're older, you're like, wait a minute, that guy was a jerk. I'm like, you know. So, and my dad used to always say, well, it's not right, but you got to think of where things were societally at the time. I'm like, well, I don't think I want to watch that movie anymore. You know? Well, of course. I just, I just want to add a little footnote to this, which is that when I was making the film, which took five and a half years, wow. a, couple of my, a couple of my feminist friends like, why aren't you making a film about the women of the civil rights movement? Or Ella Baker, who was a friend of Rustin's, who was very important here all this. You know, and we couldn't really include her in our film just because it wasn't, you know, we had 84 minutes from public television. And, right. You know, it was sad to me that we couldn't include her, but there's a lot of ground to cover. And I said, look, you know, this is what I was called to do. I, I think that we need those stories as well. It's just I'm working on this one. But it was... It was kind of awkward to have people ask me that. Yeah. Of course, of course, they were right, and and you know, I think that those women need to be brought further into the foreground. I mean, I, you know, it's I, you know, but the thing I have this conversation that I or the phrase that I say about making films is is that if you're making a film about a left-handed giraffe, you just can't include the right-handed giraffes in your movie, no matter how great they are, how cute, whoever. Right. You know, so. It was a di- that was a different subject, and I had taken this on, so it's not what we did. But but I certainly certain pain when people would ask me that. Well, it's like anything, uh, whether you're doing a film or any kind of creative art, you, you have to narrow it down. And, and and find your main focus because like you said there's just not enough time budget and film to do everything if you were doing a mini series perhaps but if you're doing a film you only have 80 minutes or maybe 120 minutes uh, you know so you have to narrow your scope we also felt that by 
bringing forward someone who was queer to show mm-hmm. like a different facet of the civil rights movement, we had actually opened up the conversation, even if it wasn't a conversation about the women leaders of the civil rights movement. Yes. So. And it's also really important because I feel like Bayard doesn't get his his due, due you know, when when we're talking about the movement and the marches, like you said, most if it wasn't for all of his planning and networking and relationships, we wouldn't have had um, Reverend Martin Luther King's career launched on such a, such a, a stratospheric you know trajectory. Um, well, King, King had you know had started out on his own oh, Montgomery, right? And, and of course, Rustin did help him. him. He went yep. to Montgomery to help him yeah. because he was such a strategic genius. Mm-hmm. And also, after bus boycott was over, um, this is the Montgomery bus boycott of 1956, Rustin was the one who said, you have to have an organization. So mm-hmm. it was Rustin's idea to start the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is a group of other ministers in the South who are working for civil rights. Right. He really, he was, a, you know, if, his genius at the March on Washington was a big piece of his legacy, but it wasn't, he had been doing really important organizing mm-hmm. for a few decades before that started. And, and it conti- continued afterwards, although in later years he got more involved in the labor movement and, and, you know, had a different kind of focus for his work. Sure. Um, but, you know, when we talk about, you know, the, the civil rights movement and you talk about the leaders, usually it's, you know, Malcolm X, Jesse Jackson, um, Reverend Martin Luther King, Don Williams, and, and you know, Bayard isn't always on these lists, which I think is, is very sad and, you know, not fair because he had such a pivotal and, and crucial and important role. Um, so I'm so glad that you made this film and that we're able to have this conversation today and just shine a light on his important part in the civil rights movement. Thank you. I mean, it's certainly, it's interesting, like, since making the film, like, Rama awarded him a Medal of Freedom posthumously, you know, now they've put out this fiction film about him. I mean, it, I think that, that we did see that making him more visible than he was, even though there are lots and lots of people who've still never heard of him. And it's often like an age divide or a racial, like, if you're African American, you might be more have heard of him, or if you're queer, you might have heard of him, because, you know, in spite of the movement to to squash history there you know people do know some history right <laughs> um but it, it definitely it, it sort of depends on who you are and what what you've been exposed to and where you live frankly mm-hmm. i mean i think that's another thing that's and the involvement about, about of your parents no, and them taking the baton to teach you and teach you what isn't taught in school so it's interesting i was a year old when the march on washington happened and my parents um my parents definitely in favor of racial justice but didn't go to the march you know there were people who brought their infants there so i could have gone um yeah it, it, it's about what and i wait i'm gonna be quiet and do another question oh hey um but just like everything i mean i talk about this ongoing in my show 
Um, what you teach in the home is so important. Um, and you have a real responsibility because you're shaping adults, you're shaping how they move in the world. And, you know, if you're not teaching your, your children about the injustices of the world, the history, um, then how are you going to expect them to have open eyes uh, and and a buy-in and 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 be involved in the injustices that are happening all around the world whether we want to look at it or not it doesn't change the fact that there is not equality and justice around this world which is something that you know i hope one day changes but a pivotal part of that is you know teach your children yeah no no for sure and I mean, I think, I think one thing that is very discouraging, I mean, it, on the other hand, my films get used all the time in school, so I'm very proud of that. It's discouraging to me how little history is being taught and how little people know about what's happened in the past and people like Rustin who paved the way for other people. Um, I was very fortunate to attend the ceremony at the White House wow. um, when, when he got his Medal of Freedom, and I got to shake hands with the Obamas, which was very exciting. Yes! I said to the president, I said, I was hoping you would say that you stood on the shoulders of Byron Rustin, and he just smiled at me and said, I didn't write my speech. <laughs> and, uh. happy to. and my friends were like, that was a gotcha. You should have said that to the president of the United States. I'm like, I think he could handle it, you know, which of course he could. Right. Um, but he, he, he did, you know, I mean, I mean, and many other people. Um, but, you know, I was not trying to be impertinent. I'm incredibly proud that we finally had an African-American president. Yes. Um, but, you know, Rustin was one of those people who paved the way, even though mm-hmm. it was 50 years ahead of time, um, or 40, I'm not going to do the math in my head right now. Right, right, right. You get, you get the point. <laughs> it was over 30. <laughs> okay, so 1963, 2008. Carries the three. <laughs> <laughs> you, you must have, like, radio assistants who could do the math for you while you're talking. <laughs> right, all right, uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, I think also I just want to say this one more time that, that as a queer person myself it's also really important to me to make sure that LGBTQ stories are not left out of our history and, and Rustin is this amazing figure because he is both African American and gay and you know those things are not indivisible he was both fully and made his contribution as this incredibly creative and brilliant gay man um, and that was one of the reasons he was overlooked in the first place, but it's also a reason to really think about him today. Yes. And, you know, the ways in which these struggles are intertwined in some ways and you know, parallel in other ways. You know, and, and my dad used to say, like, you know, we get into so many conversations on this topic, and he, he used to say, you know, you like to think that people will organically do what's right and self-sacrifice and think of others and treat each other right but unfortunately that doesn't happen and that's why we need to have these laws in place to create fairness and justice and equality and equity and equal opportunities for everybody and that the laws just don't serve one kind of people it serves all people yeah, of course. I mean, and I don't want to go into some rant about a legal system at the moment. Yeah, that's a whole nother show. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, you know, we need about three hours for that. <laughs> well, and I'm hardly an expert. I'm hardly right. An expert. 
But, you know, I, I always say we might not uh, be experts, but if we look in our hearts and honestly take a look at this world, we know what's right and what's wrong. We know well, what, well, we know what's compassionate and what isn't. I think that's the thing I learned the most from Byron Russell and telling his story was that he really believed. He used to talk about the brotherhood of mankind. You know, that's maybe out of, that's a very antiquated phrase, but he believed that we were all, we were all part of a human family. He was raised as a Quaker by his grandmother. Um, and interesting, at a time when there weren't a lot of African-American Quakers. Mm. Um, but he, he really embodied that, and it's, it's a powerful thing to think about, that you, know, you and I might disagree, but we are all connected. Exactly. And it, can we can we actually enact that in our daily lives? And of course, like somebody cuts you off in the freeway, you start cursing them in your car. Right. You know, but, but, you know, that person is a mom or a grandma or whatever, a dad. You know, you don't know. Um, and none of us hard, are perfect. You know, it's hard to live that way every single minute, but I think it's a tough thing to aspire to. Yes, exactly. Now, your film is really unique and interesting because it's a composite of photographs, interviews, you know, film clips, and you, you had access to interviews from Bob Dylan and so many important people who were part of the movement. So can you talk to us? First of all, that's just so amazing. So what was your process in getting clearance to view these things uh, and then uh, getting the access and then deciding like what you were going to incorporate in and what weren't your editing and that whole process i don't think you have enough time on your show i always say that making a film is sort of halfway between a quilt where you like gather all the stuff and then you try to figure out how to weave it together mm-hmm. um and a sculpture where you're just chipping away at it and so you get rid of everything that's not sculpture i mean it's, it's probably closer to the quilt than the, than the sculpture but um you have to get rid of a lot and you have to and kill your baby, which is a horrible thing to say, but it's like you have to sometimes get rid of the things that you love the most. Mm. Um, but we we worked with 130 archives around the world, including that footage from Ghana because he organized an anti-nuclear protest. Um, the French were you know detonating a test nuclear device in um, the Sahara um, in 1959, I believe, and he organized this protest and he got all these people to go to Ghana with him and. So it's very detailed. Like they, they had, we had lists of like what they were bringing into the desert with them, and they were eventually stopped because of course it wasn't safe to you know, be too close to where they were going to detonate the nuclear weapon. But um, you have to make choices about you know which things you're going to do, and, and it's an amazing privilege to make a film. I, I should have said that earlier, but um, there's a named Michael Randall, who I'm not sure is still alive, who was a British pacifist who went on that trip to Ghana with him. You know, to go and talk to him about his life as a peace activist, an anti-nuclear activist, I mean, what an amazing thing. Right. Um, similarly, um, while we were in London, there was another man, Debbie Prasad, who lived on the ashram that Gandhi founded, had known Rustin through peace conferences. And, wow. You know, and to talk about, you know, Rustin in India and and just his legacy from Gandhi and other people, including Henry David Thoreau, I mean, this is like I, that trip to London. I was just like, okay, if I get hit by a bus and we never finish the film, I really had this incredibly rich experience as a human being. Um, but you just work on the material. Like we get a lot of interviews. You know, we 
looked at a lot of footage. Um, I mean, we were very fortunate also that Rustin um, was a singer. Like, when he was in college and afterwards, he sang semi-professionally. Um, and you know, he had this amazing voice. And so he didn't leave a diary, but he left some recordings. We used those in the Oh, wow. To try, you know, try to convey his inner life because, you know, he had, he was a very successful man, but he also went through a lot. He was arrested mm-hmm. 24 times. He was beaten. He was a not, you know, he was nonviolent, so he didn't get back. But he, oh, wow. You know, he was beaten up by police officers and other people in the South. Um, you know, he was arrested. He was you know, caught with two men in Pasadena, California in 1953, and they called this a morals charge. Mm. Um you know, the Pasadena Police Department was notorious about cracking down on people, even heterosexual couples who were having extramarital affairs were getting caught by the police in the 50s. It was kind of <laughs> ridiculous. Um, so like they were literally cover. policing your bedroom. Exactly. And unfortunately, we're still doing that you know, today in some regards, but I will try not to rant about that. But, um, you know, it seems like body autonomy is sort of the basic level of civil rights even in America. You know, that we should have. Yeah. So we were given a very specific, we were given 84 minutes, not 85 minutes, um, to just the man's story. And um, it's not that much time. I mean, the film isn't short, but um, it was, you know, he's for 75 years. So. Yeah, it's a lot to fit in. Now, now, how did you how did you get not only like access to view all this archival stuff, but then actually uh, get them in uh, your hands on the material to incorporate in your film? I mean, I would imagine there is there like forms and things and stuff you got to go through for that. Well, we had some really fantastic people working with us, and like for example, we had a co-producer named Nadu Chandra who had the idea of writing to his high school to see if they had or stills because Austin played football. They sent us some footage from 1931, which is the year he graduated. Oh, wow. It's very grainy, but it's in the movie and it's in a shot where we think we identify them. And, and I also had the privilege of interviewing one of the people who was on his team who passed away, I think, before the film was done. But, you know, he talked about he, no one could ever get any yardage because, you know, because Rustin was so good. Um, he, he was a tackle. Yes, the guy we interviewed, and, and Rustin was always going around him. Um, you know, just like, so think, we had very, you know, there are people who work on archival research, that's their full-time profession. And so nice. We were, just, we were just tenacious and relentless in tracking things down. Which you have to be. People working with us. And then you just, yeah, you have to pay for it. And unfortunately, archival footage has gotten much more expensive since the time that we made this film. And it's, it's becoming prohibitive because corporations, for the most part, the TV networks are the ones that control the footage. And, oh. and you know, it's, it's this tragedy because independent filmmaking is, we don't have a lot of money in it. You know, we're going up against people who are much more powerful than we are that control this stuff. That's a whole other conversation we shouldn't have. But, uh, yes. but we, were just, we were just very, very tenacious about it. And we had very creative people working with us to... You know, to try to ferret out things like this footage in Ghana that I was talking about mm-hmm. as a high school, you know, and, you know, a lot of it is news footage, et cetera. Um, and, and fortunately, I mean, not everything was documented, but a lot of things were documented. Um, the peace movement itself, which he worked in pro- kind of before and, and during the civil rights movement, um, you know, they didn't take a lot of photographs, but they took some. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's difficult, you know, there were things that we didn't have very good footage of that we couldn't really, in our movie, I mean, the, there was this huge debate in 
um, Oceanville, Brownsville, which is a section of New York City and I guess in Brooklyn, um, there was this massive controversy between parents of this largely African-American area and the teachers' union, which was mostly white um, in the 60s. And Rustin was on the side of the teachers' union because he was a union guy. Mm. And it was very messy and it was it was very divisive. And, um, it, you know, we couldn't tell that story partly because it was too complicated and partly because the footage wasn't very good. And there is, I think there is a film about this whole thing. They had the same problem. You know? Right. Um, so, I don't, it, it, you know, so you, and sometimes, let's just say one more thing about this. Sometimes the footage itself determines what you're going to do. I mean, I had to fight both the editor and my co-producer. There was a piece of um, footage from the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is one of the organizations that, he, that Rustin worked for. They had made an animated film against nuclear war in the 50s. It was just beautiful. It was like Hollywood-grade animation. Wow. And, and I was like, we have to put that in the movie. And everyone was like, it doesn't fit. It's a, it's a color. It's a piece of color. Most of the footage in the 50s is black and white. I'm like, it's telling the story. We're, you know, exactly. He worked there. You know, I had to fight and fight. And, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't easy because there was music with it. We had to edit it. But it, it is in the film because I pushed really hard. You know, and sometimes you, you really need to, to, to be open to, I found something. How do I... How do I incorporate it to the story I'm telling? It's not just we're telling this piece. We have to find this footage. Sometimes it's the other way around. That right. one, like I said, it was a little bit of a battle. <laughs> it did make it into the movie. Right. So, uh, so, so now, um, a brother outsider has uh, made it into many prestigious uh, independent film festivals, uh, and and I hear that it's being released uh, November fifth in theaters. Is that correct? That's the feature film. That's not our film. Our film is a documentary, and it was completed some years ago. Oh, the feature the feature film is coming out on November fifth. Um, and on Netflix, I believe. Okay, um, and that yeah. that so that's a separate film that isn't yours. Yeah, right. Correct. That's correct. a feature film. Gotcha. Made by George George Wolf. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, um, but, but the film's on uh, it's on Canopy and other places, and it's available online. And we'd love for people to see it, and I'm happy to come and talk to people about it too, if if they have an organization that you know, we talk at schools, at law firms, at companies. Um, I, you know, I didn't expect to be sort of a quasi unofficial DEI expert, but that's been part of the you know, the legacy of making this film. Oh well, that, you know, I think that's also um, why God called you to it. Oh, that's very sweet. <laughs> um, but yeah, I hope people will learn about Rustin and think about his legacy. And, you know, people are always asking me like, "What would Rustin say about this?" And I would, I would say like, "I can't speak for him." Why? something to say now now have you thought about um uh, submitting to like hulu and peacock and some of the streaming platforms and we haven't had a lot of luck with that but i keep trying okay well, well, um, sure. Well, uh, I say now, now, now that I have your number, now I get you. <laughs> I get yeah, if you know someone at Hulu, let me know. <laughs> yes, uh, but um, I actually 
Uh, well, first of all, I'm I'm just so I'm I know we don't know each other, but I'm proud of you, and Thank what you you're what you're doing is very important and amazing. So make sure everybody go Google and check out Brother Outsider: The Life uh, of Bayard Rustin. And you know, I hope today's show inspires our listeners to go out and research and you know do their own research and learn. But I, I know a lot of different um, charities here in, in the city and stuff. So I'm going to kind of put my think cap on and uh, dive into my, my Rolodex of things and see where I can connect you with some organizations and people where I feel your message would be very important and beneficial. Um, I also know there's different organizations where you can actually make your own TV channel um, for things that'll stream on Roku and things like that, like stuff that keeps coming in my inbox and I'm like I don't have time to do all that I'm like I want to grow but I'm just one person <laughs> so it's like you know you like you said with your editing you gotta choose well am I gonna continue to launch and grow all my radio stuff or am I gonna do TV I, I have a day job so I can't do be all things everywhere all the time but <laughs> but I'm like, I, there's only one more, not five. So, but, uh, you know, I, I think some of these things that actually have been recently coming my way would be advantageous for some of the things that you're doing and just putting what you're doing on a larger uh, platform and scale, which is well deserved. Well, thank you so much, really. And it's been a pleasure to speak with you. I- Yes, yes. So uh, quickly, uh, Nancy, where can our listeners follow you uh, on social media? Well, um, I have Facebook accounts for this film, and also I made a film about the writer Susan Sontag. Um, We have websites. Rustin.org is the website for this film. Um, And there's a lot of information on there that people can check out about his life and about the film and where it's been. Um, And I'm not... I think I don't think I still have a Twitter account. I don't know. I haven't been to a number of Twitter. <laughs> I, I haven't Twittered like, in like six not years. That is called X. I, right. I'm still up there, but I'm not really visible. So those are the main ways. But I'm always happy to hear from people and um, really thank you for the opportunity to talk about my work today. Oh, you're welcome. Oh, you're welcome. It's been more than a pleasure. Uh, So we're going to jump into another musical break, and we'll be back with more Style and Empowerment Chat with Laura and Friends after this. Thanks so much, Nancy. Thank you. Take good care. Okay, bye-bye. It was fun. Bye-bye. You've given me a true love And every day I For a feeling that's so new So inviting, so exciting Whenever you're near I hear a symphony A tender melody Pulling me closer, closer to your arms Then suddenly, your lips are 
mi mañe, en el bongo de mi vida, cante como gota, me mira como vida, como para la alegría de mi vida, no me digas ni un momento, como gota en la luna, que cometa como gota, mira mañe, anda la alegría con
Waited all my life for your touch and your soft kiss And life will never be the same While you moan and groan, I hear your voice call my name Holding your body like a plastic molding Your soul I'll be controlling as candles burn We toss and we turn Like today, all our pleasures we learn Come and It's getting harder and harder 
Chat with little Lauren, friends, a little Maxwell and Alicia Keys throwback. Um, of course, uh, Maxwell just announced that he ha- has um, a cruise coming out. Uh, you can uh, spend Valentine's Day weekend uh, with with your, your loved one and cruise the Bahamas uh, uh, with Maxwell and Lettucey, Music Soul Child. It's going to be on that cruise, and so it's going to be a bunch of uh, concerts and performers and stuff throughout the couple of days uh, taken off from Florida to Nassau. Uh, so, and then he, he just came out and um, said that he is working on a new album. So, and apparently he has a whole um, bunch of unreleased material uh, from when he was a teenager, which he's going to release after he releases the final chapter of the Night Trilogy uh, of albums. So, you know, we're waiting on that. We're we're waiting on that. Uh, So now, of course, the Phillies are in the playoffs uh, against the Atlanta Braves. So uh, they have returned to Philly tonight uh, for the next game in the playoffs I believe I think is this the game that decides um who goes to the world series I think there's one more game I I think I think two I think it's two games here in Philly so you know there's still tickets available standing room only starts at 250 dollars I'd rather stand in my living room and watch it for free on my TV. But, you know, it is exciting to see uh, baseball games in person. I could do baseball and and basketball, uh, but football really doesn't engage me uh, that much. So it'll be exciting uh, to see who wins. Uh, and it's, you know, great for this, always great. Uh, for the cities. Uh, so now um, other good news for our students out there who uh, are dealing with, uh, you know, loan debt, uh, student loan debt. Uh, President Biden just announced yesterday another student loan relief initiative that is valued at $9 billion. 
So um, the announcement comes after a three-year-long pause to federal student loan payments that came to an end this month. So uh, President Biden said that by freeing millions of Americans from the crushing burden of student debt, it means they can go and get their lives in order. They can think about buying a house. They can start a business or start a family. This matters in the daily lives of Americans. So earlier in the summer, the Biden administration launched Saving on Valuable Education. The plan already includes lower monthly payment options, faster forgiveness for those who qualify. Um, and, and now the administration's latest announcement promises an expanded version of what's already in place. So this comes months after the administration uh, initially fought for this program and many others aimed at alleviating the nearly $2 trillion in U.S. student loan debt after the Supreme Court struck down widespread loan cancellation. So, among other details, the SAVE plan offers a one-year grace period for payments which is great, especially, you know, you leave college, it takes you a minute to find a good paying job and, you know, get your situation together. Uh, so under the new plan, you'll be able to have a year grace period before you have to start paying back your loans. And there's, you know, diff other different uh, things in place where you can you know, apply for different assets of the plan uh, where you can get uh, loan forgiveness. Uh, so uh, that's a great thing. I mean, it would just be nice if colleges stopped charging so much money uh, for, for the students and also if they... Mm -hmm, it changed the way uh, people pay. You know, there's a limit on how much you can get in scholarships and how much you can get in the student aid. Uh, I think it's well overdue that these colleges lessen percentage that uh, students and their families have to pay out of pocket. I mean, I, I feel like if somebody can get their whole situation covered through scholarship, why can't the schools let that happen? As long as the fees are getting paid, why does it matter that part of it has to come from the student? You know, if they they can't afford it, uh, that's not fair. You know, if they qualify to uh, to be in school and and their tests are at the level of expectations and all the things that they look for in in students. Why is someone deprived in education because they can't afford to pay the percentage that um, the schools are saying they have to pay? You know, if you get work hard and you're gifted and talented and you get scholarships, which that in itself is a lot of work and it's very hard, right? Because there's a, a lot of worthy kids out there, right? Applying for all these scholarships and competing against one another. So if you actually you know, get a benefactor or get a scholarship, um, why can't 
uh, it just be paid through that. I don't think it's fair that a lot of these colleges here in the United States make the payment come, you know, uh, from uh, the students, you know, or their family. And you're then robbing people who otherwise could get an education uh, from having it because they can't afford to pay the difference, right? So I think the first problem is that the price of education has just gotten so astronomically high, um, which isn't fair. And then also, um, it's uh, and then the loan rates are so high, and uh, you know, and you're just keeping a cycle of poverty going. And the whole idea of going to college, uh, the the concept of it is that you learn skills and you build friends and networks that help you later in life, and to leverage yourself up. But you know, if you're putting these kinds of caps and restrictions. What winds up happening is that, you know, people who are motivated and intelligent but didn't come from the most wealthiest background, you know, you're, you're keeping them in a state of potential poverty. Uh, I don't see why these uh, loan rates have to be, interest rates have to be so high, you know, to begin with. So I'm happy to see that the Biden administration has been making some headway into evening the playing field and um, giving the next generation of young adults a leg up um, towards school equity, you know, and building a financial uh, foundation in their lives. Uh, so, you know, that's really important. Uh, so, um, we're wrapping up today's show. So, I uh, hope that uh, today's show was enriching and gave gave you some uh, things to think about uh, and know that everybody can make a difference and, you know, educating ourselves and, uh, on the issues and having the courage to stand up and take a stand. We all can make a difference and especially when we come together. And um, we all can make a difference in how we, we make each other feel and supported and validated. And, uh, you know, it doesn't cost anything to be kind to one another and to care about somebody else's perspective. Uh, so I hope you have a great and purposeful day. Uh, again, you can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at the Laura Masaryk and on, like and follow Facebook page of Style and Empowerment Chat and you know take time uh, to vote uh, for me for the Fab at 40 contest uh, it's been a pleasure I hope everyone has a fantastic rest of their day and we'll be back with more next week
Ooh. 